Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reform Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to prepare pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm an associate professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington and the president of this campus. And I'm joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, associate professor of New Testament and academic dean at RTS. Hi, Tommy. Hello, Scott. I'm also joined by Dr. Grace Sutanto, who has uh, just come on our faculty as assistant professor of systematic theology. Hey, Gray. Hey, Scott. Glad to be here. And I'm especially joined today, though joined every week, uh, by Dr. Peter Lee, associate professor of Old Testament, like myself, and dean of students at RTS. Hey, Peter. Hey, Scott. Good to see you again, or good to be with you again. It's great to be with you and see you as we're recording this on Zoom, everybody, we can see each other's faces and uh, it is good always to connect that we look forward to doing it more in person. There's a lot of talk these days about suffering. Oftentimes that suffering is, is, is anecdotal and it's about personal individual suffering. And a lot of times it's communal and we're talking about collective suffering, suffering amongst groups, maybe something that someone didn't experience personally, but they're in solidarity with those who have experienced it. And it's led our discussion to talking about what it means to be a Christian in the face of suffering. How do we deal with suffering? How do we absorb it? How do we respond? How do we find joy in it as Christians who are bought with the blood of Jesus Christ? And it's important for us to think about this, not only in sociological or historical terms, but in theological, practical theological terms, and a great resource for applying a practical theology of suffering and of joy to the situations in which we find ourselves is the book Unspeakable Joy by Dr. Peter Lee. And that's why he's our special guest, though he's also a regular guest here on the podcast. So we're going to talk today about Dr. Peter Lee's work on finding joy in the midst of suffering and that, that whole complicated endeavor. And so, Dr. Lee, I want to start off and just ask you, um, in this book, you find First Peter, um, you start with First Peter chapter 1, verse 8, but then you move quickly and understandably to First Peter chapter 4 to talk about uh, a biblical theological view of suffering. Can, can you just start off and give us a little bit of background? What led you to those texts? How did you end up you know, on this, this inquiry of finding joy in suffering? Uh, yeah, well, thanks, Scott. Um, I appreciate the uh, uh, opportunity to share a little bit about this subject, which is, as you said, it's just been... Um, you know, on the forefront, really, in in so many people's minds, particularly over the last several months. But you know, in many ways, this has been the perennial uh, question that has that has been on uh, the hearts of God's people, or just people in general. You know, since since creation, I like everyone else, uh, our listeners, and, and like you, my dear friends, uh, have had moments of real of real trials and hardships, and they still, you know, are things that I go through in, in my life today. And, and I, like so many others, really wrestle with it and try to see something redeemable, a way to salvage a sense of, uh, of joy and hope in the midst of all of these trials. I remember I was um, going through a particular trial fairly early in my life, 
and it was it was very painful, very difficult. And I I remember I I needed to escape, so I ended up going to um, uh, a seminary class at the time, <laughs> because seminary classes is are incredibly helpful to find uh, uh, instruction and and guidance. And and I just needed something. And and the class that I happened to uh, uh, sit in was taught by uh, Ed Clowney. Uh, some, uh, I mean, I know you men know who Ed Clowney was, and 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 I really hope a lot of our the people who listen to our podcast uh, can remember uh, or not if they don't remember, come to uh, appreciate and try to hunt down some of Ed Clowney's old materials that he published, sermons that might be floating around on the internet. Dr. Ed Clowney was uh, phenomenal in terms of his preaching and and his uh, preaching Christ through all of the scriptures. That sort of became his major uh, goal towards the end of his career, throughout his entire career, was to preach Christ through all the scripture. The, the one class that I was sitting in was entitled Preaching Christ in First Peter. And uh, given the nature of what I was going through at the time, this this class was just hugely helpful, just healing and instructive. And it wasn't a lot of... Um, ethereal thought, just a lot of cliches that we kind of throw around sometimes that you you will hear sometimes in Christian circles. This was really grounded in ex-Jesus, uh, in theology, in the redemptive work of Christ. I, I remember uh, his talking about 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, the, the passage that you mentioned, where it talked about, though we don't see him, uh, we believe in him, and though we don't see him now, we can uh, rejoice in his name with a joy unspeakable is is what it says there. And it was that phrase of a unspeakable joy. It's sort of the old King James translation that grasped, that kind of grasped me, very poetic and elegant way of describing a joy that we have in Christ is as so uh, incredible and majestic that you can't really adequately describe it with human words. And I thought that's that's phenomenal. And we and and but we have that now in Christ is what became very clear. It's not something that we will have in the future. It's something that we can have now. And uh, and that was just so hugely uh, uh, and and just it just uh, really ministered to me at the time. I recall the uh, uh, the the verse that um, that I really began to ponder on more. Uh, was in First Peter chapter four verses twelve and thirteen, where the apostle Peter says, "You know, don't be surprised as if something strange is happening to you. That is, when you are suffering for Christ's sake, when these times of hardships come, don't be surprised as if something is if something uh, weird is happening to you. But then he says to rejoice, for you share in the sufferings of Christ. Something quite not. I, I may have stumbled a few." words here or there uh, in, in the verse, but it dawned on me as I was reading that, you know, the joy that Peter is talking about is this inexpressible joy of 1 Peter 1.8. But what really surprised me is how he says that we can have that now because we participate in Christ's sufferings, because we are in fellowship with the sufferings of Christ, where he seems to say that the source of our joy is the suffering, not just the glory. It's sort of the suffering, the glory together, that is the source of the joy. And as I pondered that more, that just seemed such an incredibly insightful way of, of, of looking at Christian joy or Christian suffering. It is the source of the joy. So if you take the suffering out, you essentially are taking the Christian's joy away 
But the reason why it's not because we want to suffer for suffering's sake, that's not, you know, we're not a bunch of spiritual masochists. We, uh, the goal that we desire is to be in communion with Christ, to conform to the image of Christ. And uh, I ponder, you know, how, how, how much do we really want that? You know, how much do we really want to know Jesus? Uh, we, we want to know, you know, uh, what it means to be glorified, to be adopted as co-heirs with Christ. Uh, we want to be justified in Christ, uh, sanctified. We, we want all these great things, which is, of course, we have, and it, and it is genuinely a great source of comfort and uh, assurance and uh, joy for us as Christians. But, but Peter seemed to be saying something different in First Peter 4, where he says that you can rejoice— because you share in his suffering as well as his glory. And it's the idea that, that you, we, we won't fully understand the, the full extent of a joy that we have in Christ unless we understand the fullest extent of our union with Christ, which means being, being understanding his suffering as well as his glory. So the call there, it seems to be, is, to, is a call to a strong, somewhat sober communion or a union with Christ who experienced suffering and glory. And for us to experience that same kind of suffering and glory, you see, that's our joy. For after all, uh, what, what, is the, what is there more for a Christian than to conform to the image of Christ, you see? And so for that reason, First Peter has always had a very special place in my heart as a believer. Uh, when I was church planting, the name of our church actually came from the phrase that is found in First Peter. Uh, so Living Hope Presbyterian Church that uh, uh, came out of First Peter. The first series of sermons I preached in our church plant was actually through First Peter. And it's always had a very, uh, a very strong impact on, on, on me uh, really ever, ever since then. It's interesting. I ended up going into the Old Testament in spite of that, but uh, but uh, First Peter was just, and it remains to this day, uh, a very, very special book. I have to put, put in the plug, by the way, Dr. Tommy Keene's lectures on First Peter are excellent and uh, uh, hugely helpful, and, uh, and his uh, lectures there just added to my love for, the, uh, for that book. Peter, we actually have something in common. We both preached through First Peter, apparently, our first sermon series. That was that was my first sermon series as a young pastor as well. Well, you know what they say about brilliant minds. It, that it's and they say it because it's true. I bet you, you know, Gray. I'm sure your first sermon series was through First Peter as well, as well as Doctor Red's. It's not. It just goes to show that I'm less brilliant, and I have to accept that fact. No, but Peter, I love what you were saying there about suffering. You know, it's a, it's a positive view of suffering. It's a theological understanding that undergirds that kind of discussion of suffering, which goes against a kind of simplistic view of suffering that says, you know, suffering is just always a penal consequence for your sin, that if you're suffering, it must mean that you're hiding some kind of sin. Uh, you know, thinking about Job's friends, for example, right, accusing Job of hiding a particular sin, and that's the only reason why God would allow such suffering to befall upon his life which to me has always struck me as kind of the logic of the prosperity gospel, where if you suffer, it must mean that you're guilty. And if you're prospering, that also means that you're actually being more faithful in Christ. But what you're actually saying is there is a kind of suffering that comes from obedience to Jesus, that there is a kind of suffering that isn't just suffering for suffering's sake. It's not suffering for doing wrong, as First Peter also addresses, but it's suffering as a manifestation of union. 
I wonder if you can go uh, and, and tell us a little bit more about the kinds of sufferings that the, the Bible talks about that I do think you, you touch on the book as well. Right. Uh, yeah, thanks, Gray. I, I think uh, it's hugely helpful to understand the, uh, at least what I came across as, as being perhaps a little bit more of a appreciation to the level of way scripture deals with suffering. The, I, I guess I could rattle off all of this off the top of my head. You know, you'll just have to read the first chapter of the book. <laughs> the, um, but yeah, the yeah, first thing, of course, uh, we have to acknowledge is that, yes, um, Suffering does result as because of our sins. There's no doubt of that. And when we sin, we will suffer. And this is put in incredibly simplistically, but, but at the end of the day, the resolution to that suffering is confession and repentance of our sins. Now, it's obviously much more elaborate and detailed, uh, but at the end of the day, that's the, that is a good Christian response to suffering as a result of sin. There is a whole load of other ways that the scriptures deals with other kinds of suffering are, that are not quite as clear. You know, scripture teaches that uh, suffering uh, can develop Christian character that forges us more and more and sanctified into the image of Christ. Uh, scripture talks about the way that suffering leads us to the word of God. The Bible teaches how suffering gives us a, a zeal for missionary endeavors suffering allows us the glory of God to be manifest, the power of God to be manifest. For example, in John 9, with the, uh, with the man that was born blind, the question was, who sent him and his parents? And, and Jesus' answer is basically saying, you're asking the wrong question, you see. Uh, not all suffering is a result of sin, but this is a way to demonstrate the power of God. There might be a few others. Of course, the most, um, uh, one of the more well-known and celebrated ways that we have um, encouraged and ministered to God's people who are suffering is uh, the future glory that awaits us uh, in Christ far outweighs the suffering that we have to endure now. And, and that's beautiful. That's true. Absolutely true. And we look forward to that. And, and so what I've always found encouraging is just how almost exhaustive scripture is. It has a lot to say and offers a lot of constructive, helpful hope. A hopeful instruction, that is, for people who are enduring some very intense and trying times. The one thing that I did feel that was absent in, or the common denominator in, the, in that whole litany of, um, of things that I just mentioned, it, it's all true, it's all biblical, it's all fantastic. Uh, but, they, but the majority of them seem to be based on some type of a future source of encouragement and hope. None of that seems to ever deal with the actual experience of the suffering here and now. And that's where a text like First Peter chapter four, which is which had often been not part of the dialogue here, seemed to me very helpful and instructive. It it is causing us to see that the suffering that we go through now can be a source of joy, which is causing us now, you see, to look at it differently. Before we could we would say our suffering is bad, future glory is good, which is in a sense true. But what First Peter chapter 4 seems to be saying is the suffering you're going through now is good, but the glory of the future is better. So it's not a, a choice of a bad thing versus a good thing. It's a choice between a good thing and a better thing. And that seems to me very different and, uh, and a way uh, redeeming the suffering that we are going through now as being something that is to our blessing 
now you see as believers. I think that's what I, I, I guess keep stressing. It's not like you have to just buckle down, you know, to, to uh, just sort of pull up your bootstraps and and just kind of endure now uh, and experience joy later. Uh, Peter is saying, um, no, you can enjoy, you can experience joy now as well uh, as a pure inversion of that in the future. But joy is something that you can have right now. One of the things I really also appreciate about your book that, that Gray picked up on as well is just the variety of responses and the, the depth that you bring out that scripture has for us when with regard to suffering, both, you know, what causes it. There's no simplistic kind of um, punishment for sin or, or, you know, there's no simplistic diagnosis for, for how suffering impacts our lives, but then also like it's effects, like the joy that we experience the, um, I, I, I remember reading the first chapter of your book and being struck because in the first Peter class, we talk about all the different kinds of suffering. And I came up with three and your first chapter lists 13, uh, at least, uh, at least if, if memory serves. Um, and I just meant being, remember being struck about by the resources we have in scripture to deal with pastorally and personally and corporately the reality of suffering in our lives. Could you reflect a little bit? I'd love to hear your thoughts um, just on, in terms of how do I process that in the moment? So I've got, I've, I've got this depth of, of resource available to me. How do I map scriptural instruction about suffering onto my own life? How do I, how do I, maybe I'll put it crassly and I'm sure because you're a good thinker and theologian, you'll nuance it for me. Um, how do I figure out why God is causing me to suffer now? Why this moment? Why this suffering? Why this particular pain? It's such a good question, Tommy. And, and truth be told, I, I don't know if I have a really good, um, uh, a good answer to that question. It might be enough broadly to just say that suffering is just the mark of, of life that we have here. It is the result of living in a fallen world, that we live in a community and a society that, that is infested with sin and the impact of sin, and that what we go through from uh, moment to moment or just in various different stages in our lives is going to be marked uh, for that reason that way. Uh, with trials, we, we live with a completely different set of values as Christians. Uh, it's in conflict with the world that is at times militantly opposed to it. And for that reason, it's not surprising that uh, we would go through trials on a fairly routine basis. And for that reason, uh, it's always encouraging to read scripture and hear what it has to say about the wide breadth of words, various different words of encouragement and hope that it offers us when we go through uh, these these particular trying times. Honestly, I would love to know what you guys think uh, uh, and answer to the to to that question of uh, the here and now of, of suffering. Well, I think your point about joy not coming in spite of suffering but in in a way through suffering or because of suffering, but this idea of the joy being in the midst of it and, and, and being balanced by it and balancing the suffering, right? And I think of Isaiah, who for him, this question is very 
real. He's watched the Northern Kingdom tumble. He's anticipating the Babylonian come, uh, invasion. And he's wondering why it has to be this way. And that's where he realizes the mystery of God. He says, his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. You know, Isaiah 55, uh, 8. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your ways are higher than our ways. You know, Paul has the same struggle as he's watching unbelieving Jewish brothers and sisters reject the gospel. And he's wondering why, why is it going this way? And he says, your ways are past finding out. I think Job is vindicated in the fact that he doesn't have an answer as to why he's suffering, but he also doesn't refute God's sovereignty in the midst of it. I don't know if this is getting exactly at the question, but when someone is suffering now, I think what we have to do is we do have to search our hearts and see, is there, is there a hurtful way in me? that this is a result, this is a consequence of. And at the same time, regardless if you can discover that, regardless if you can unpack what that thing is, or if there's one at all, if there's a, you know, a sin at all that's being dealt with, um, I think in some instances we can clearly say, no, there is no sin that brought this around. This is somebody else's sin. All of it should result in a returning to the Lord and seeking his glory in the midst of it. And yeah. That doesn't by any means excuse the oppressor or the one who's bringing the suffering. You know, this is, this is what Habakkuk is dealing with when he's watching Babylon come, come for Judah. And he's saying, on one hand, in Judah, you have both the wicked and the, and the innocent, and they're all going to suffer as a result of Babylon. And he says to the Lord, but what about Babylon? Are they somehow good because they're doing this thing that is bringing judgment to the wicked, even though the innocent will also be a part of it? And the Lord's answer is no, Babylon must be judged too. You know, I give thanks for the sufferings of Christ. And yet I would never want to be one of those Roman soldiers with the nails and the hammer, right? You know, there's this conflict at the core of the gospel that I think is really dealing with this question. It's amazing how rich the Old Testament is uh, dealing with this issue of suffering. You got the propositional kind of statements in the New Testament, but there's all these, these, these analogous experiences that we can look to in the Old Testament. I probably should read it someday. It's great <laughs> to have your, you, you Old Testament guys here to, to bring these things out. I, I was thinking about it as you were talking, Scott, and it's, it's really like the intent of the question is like a lot of times in pastoral ministry, you, know, you have to either deal with your own suffering and how do I process that or help somebody else get through get through their time of trial uh should, should it be the lord's will for them to get through their time of trial and, and and how do you direct traffic and what i guess one of the things that's so helpful there is you know sometimes we just don't know like i don't know is a perfectly acceptable answer and it's it's almost as if you've got several books of the bible dedicated to the fact that we don't always know what God is doing. And yet that shouldn't short circuit our desire to search the heart, to meditate, to, to beseech God for help. Mm -hmm. um, and all of those various kinds of suffering, what we can know is that if we are in Christ, all of those kinds of suffering are manifesting our union with him. He suffered with us in every way as, as we suffer. So, you know, the list of all the different ways in which we could suffer, all the different causes of it, injustice, sin. Like he experienced all of those kinds of suffering, not for his own sin, 
but because of our sin. And so all those kinds of suffering manifest then and are ways in which I can appropriate my union with him. And to Peter's, you know, first Peter four, to Peter's point and the glory that is to come. There's this scene that was just funny. I was, it was just brought to my mind a couple of days ago. Um, and uh, I was reminded of it and, and it speaks to this point. It's from the book by Corey Ten Boom, The Hiding Place, where she recounts her experience in the, um, uh, in the concentration camps under the Third Reich. And there's a scene where she and her sister Betsy are there and they're being stripped naked in front of all of the guards for washing, right? But all of the guards are there. And of course, it's meant to show power. It, it's meant to shame the victim and to dehumanize them. And here they are, these, these two sisters, and they're in line. And all of a sudden, Matthew 27 pops into Corey Ten Boom's brain, and she rem- is reminded that Jesus was stripped by the Roman soldiers. And it's, it's not that she even kind of reflects on that, on how even in, in artwork, uh, the artists in, in Christian history often cover up Jesus in some way and try to, this is her thought process. You know, and she realizes, oh, they were trying to honor him, but there was no honor at the original event. And she's, thinking about this and she just whispers to Betsy, they stripped him naked too. And there is this solidarity because she loves Christ, because he's the object of her affection, recognizing that connection that shared suffering with him gives this deep sort of abiding hope in the midst of this terrible event. And this doesn't excuse, obviously it doesn't excuse the soldiers. It doesn't excuse the situation. It doesn't make it good. It's, it's horrific just as it was on Christ. And yet that gives such a powerful picture of reminding us how we can, how there can be this joy, even in the midst of unspeakable horror, right? There can be unspeakable joy. That's awesome. I think, you know, we can describe it theologically, as we said, as the New Testament does, that's the kind of suffering that manifests our union with Christ. And as you said, Tommy, there's oftentimes so many moments where we don't know why the suffering is happening to us, but at the same time, it is the suffering that points us towards Christ. And I think that gets at a kind of phenomenological description of what it looks like to suffer in union with Christ. And I think it, it looks like self-forgetfulness, I think it confirms to me that joy means forgetting the self. I'm, I'm getting that term, of course, from, from Tim Keller's little book. Joy means forgetting the self and thinking about and contemplating God in Jesus Christ. And suffering that manifests our union with Christ directs us towards the suffering of another, right? And that our suffering participates and points us to the suffering of another, namely the Christ. And so that example, Scott, that you just gave of as they were being stripped naked, they actually thought of another and that's exactly where their joy comes from. Not by thinking about, oh, am I suffering in Christ now? Not by being anxious about, oh, is this it? Is this the moment where I am finally suffering in a way that manifests my union with Christ? Uh, But they actually just point to him. Their minds are lingering there and they're not thinking about themselves anymore. They're suddenly just thinking about Jesus and that's enough. And I think that's a, a good phenomenological description of what it could look like 
to be suffering in Christ. Yeah, that's great, Ray. It, it's not just it's also typological from a from a, a historical redemptive standpoint. I mean, this is a, you know it's hard to not preach the Joseph narratives or study it uh, in the Book of Genesis in a way that is not that doesn't find its ultimate resolution in Christ because it so uh, resonates a the righteous suffering of Christ or the prophets of the Old Testament. You know, I I, my, I spent a lot of time on Hosea. Who was called to marry an unfaithful wife, and just how, and how even the text of Hosea specifies that that marriage between Hosea and his unfaithful wife is a reflection of the Lord in His covenantal communion with Israel, and how we see that also as being typological, a, a shadowy reflection of Christ uh, as well. So even there, you could say Hosea is being called to fellowship with Christ. Uh, Joseph is being called to fellowship with, uh, with Christ. In that sense, you know, it's, it's extraordinary. And I don't mean this in any way to be flippant. Suffering of this capacity is a real blessing. Uh, we don't want it. We shouldn't look for it, nor should we even pray for it. That's silly. But it's going to happen. And when it happens, the word of encouragement that we can offer is that this actually can be a, a, a source of blessing, of joy, if it's understood uh, properly. And, and to me, that I guess as a pastor, as a one-time real pastor, as a, as a believer, it's, it's just uh, so comforting to be able to see that not only is death, the penalty of death, something that we are redeemed of, but even the, uh, the power of sin that is suffering in, in the world that we live has no power over me, you see. Uh, both the, the power of sin that is in our suffering, the penalty of sin that is death, is redeemed uh, and uh, in Christ. There's a lot of discussion today about collective suffering, you know, suffering that you may not personally experience, but that others have experienced in history or uh, just even in, in the current day, but around the world. I mean, there's one implication of that that I've run into, um, you know, having the privilege to work with Christians who are converts from Islam in the Middle East and North Africa and going over there with all of my, uh, my book smarts, <laughs> right, which, which are great and are helpful and yet sitting there, you know, at, after a class on systematic theology or biblical theology and sitting there at lunch and being trained in how to participate in the sufferings of Christ through these brothers and sisters over there. And there's a, there's a benefit in that. I, I, I've joked before with, with them that I'm going to teach them theology and they're going to teach me how to be a Christian. Uh, and there is something about that, that I'm not personally experiencing, but I am in solidarity with their experience of it. Right. So I want to, just ask you, Peter, can you talk a little bit about the idea of sort of collective or group suffering? I know as an Old Testament scholar, you see that a lot throughout the scriptures, but how we are united horizontally with our sufferings with Christ, which we might think of as vertically, okay? Um, could you speak to that a little bit? The reality of, of, of corporate suffering, of course, is, um, is, is sound biblically. I mean, the, the Bible... It, it, First Peter himself talks about the the church as going through uh, that sort of stages in in her 
path to redemption as as uh, as a path of suffering that leads to glory. And that's not talking about an individual. That's talking about corporately the church, the a, the collective idea of the church. The um, and thus you you see how the the church is called to follow in the same path. Uh, as Christ himself, who also went from suffering to glory, so the church also uh, goes from suffering to glory. That That's in many ways helpful for us to identify ourselves corporately as a church now. You know, what we are going through now in the, hist- in the life of the church is a, this is the time of the church suffering. This isn't time of the church in glory. We are called to uh, suffer. Thus, Peter's warning, or not warning, but word of encouragement uh, that we shouldn't be surprised by the trials that we are going through, as if something weird is is happening to us. This is all, there's nothing wrong with the church. There's nothing wrong with our faith. There's nothing wrong with God, perhaps. That's most important, that this is just part of what we are called called to go through. So there's definitely the, the reality of, of a collection of individuals, a corporate idea that there is uh, groups that uh, that suffer in a very similar type of a way. Uh, again, I, uh, as as I've always done, brothers, I, I'd love your guys' thoughts on this as well. Well, I think some of the passages that come to mind for me are particularly those passages that talk about our unification in Christ, and that that's a that's a multifaceted faceted application. Uh, in our lives, you know, he, he's our Lord, and we all have this shared, this shared sense of lordship and worship and service to Him, and that draws us together. You can't, you know, you think about people within a country, for instance, who all have this shared sense of patriotism and and solidarity in some way, and therefore, when one part of the country suffers the whole of the country should suffer in a way because of this identification with one another. And the same would be true in the kingdom of God, obviously. So there's the shared Lordship. There's the shared DNA that we have of the spirit of Christ, the Holy spirit. And uh, that we are in a way, all brothers and sisters in him. And therefore, even if one part of the body experiences suffering where another part does not, there still should be a solidarity within that. Um, I think about that particularly right now in the United States where there's, where there's so much discussion of injustice against one section of our society, which there's kind of a, there's, there's a, there's a, a, a patriotic aspect to that. Right. And then there's this suffering within one section of the church. And there's a Christian unity aspect to that in which Christians are called to be in solidarity with those who are suffering, right? And to, and to experience that with one another under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, under our union with Jesus Christ. And that, that, that draws us together. We should weep with those who weep, right? Now I'm going back to Ecclesiastes. Um, but we should experience that with them and seek for it to be lifted. Even while recognizing, as you point out, that in that suffering, we get to see Christ anew. And there's that tension again in the Christian life of this suffering drawing us to Christ. And yet also because of the character of Christ, we can't stand to see such injustice and such oppression, right? To see both of those in action, which by the way, find their locus in the cross. This whole thing happens because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can find unspeakable joy in suffering. 
that that tension to me it's not it's not even it's not even like so much of a paradox or a tension it's just these can sometimes feel like conflicting conflicting pulls to see both joy and suffering and to seek to eradicate suffering for the same reason because of the character of christ yeah on that kind of corporate character note i i'm i was in teaching gospels i've i've been thinking a lot about the magnificat lately and the songs at the beginning of of luke you know, it's interesting, Mary, you know, her prayer starts out very personal. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. From behold, For behold, now all generations will call me blessed. It's like very personal. God has redeemed Mary. But then as the, um, you know, as her song continues, she moves out of this personal experience to a more, kingdom level salvation so she concludes with he has helped his servant israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to abraham to his offering offspring forever like you get this beautiful collision of the corporate and the individual character of suffering so that god is redeeming her and in redeeming her redeeming everyone all israel and you know and and then you know the abrahamic promises all the world through through this son that he is sending to her and and the reverse is also true as we consider the corporate we are drawn back to our individual role in suffering our need to confess perhaps we're drawn into our our experience of suffering as a as a microcosm of the of the corporate realities like those two ideas shouldn't be at odds with one another and to your point scott weep with those who weep how do i do that is it's by seeing like mary sees it's by seeing myself in terms of the the kingdom of god and ultimately through union with christ as as a part of this broader salvation that god that god is bringing about a glory that he is obtaining through uh through christ so it's interesting, Tommy, you mentioned the Magnificat because there really is this kind of like poetic intertextuality that goes back to Hannah's song. Yep. And then you can trace it through the Psalm 113 and then to the Magnificat and they're all referencing miraculous birth of some kind. Of course, in the Old Testament, it's just the uh, birth amongst the barren. And of course, in, in, in Mary's sense, it's it's magnified, right? Hence the Magnificat, but it's it's amplified as is often the case in the New Covenant to virgin birth. And in each one of those songs, Psalm one thirteen, of course, is anonymous, so we don't know who it's sung by. But it's concern for birth in barrenness. It's possible that it's a female voice. That you have Hannah's song, Psalm one thirteen, the Magnificat, and in each case. The miraculous birth is important, right? And yet, what's really remarkable is God bringing justice to the oppressed, to the humble, bringing glory to the downtrodden. It's really interesting how that's undergirds. That's that's the topic that's discussed most in all three of those songs. And it's even interesting as you read it because it talks about the the destruction of the oppressor and the judgment that it will come upon the oppressor. And here, there's here's a song of a of a mom who just found out that she's going to have a baby after yearning for one. And one of the things she's really concerned about is that oppressors are put down. You know, and and he realized that in the midst of 
this um, finding the joy in the blessing, there's the flip side of that, which is that those who bring affliction and oppression must also be judged. And that's throughout the Old and the New Testament, that for us to be saved and enjoy the benefits of salvation, the other side has to be true too, which is that those who are opponents of salvation, those who are bringing injustice, those, those who are the reason why we need to be saved need to also be judged. And of course, again, that picture finds its locus. It's, it's, everything comes together in Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection, taking upon himself the judgment of sin so that we might enjoy the benefits, the inheritance that he has won for us. And both sides of those coin, that that coin has to be involved in the work of salvation that Christ is accomplishing for us in that and in what we are benefiting from ourselves. And I think that's coming I mean, when we teach the prophets, which I just got done teaching and I'm going to begin teaching it again in a couple of weeks, that, that theme just keeps coming up over and over again. And, and students often ask, why is there so much judgment and laments for oppression in the prophets? And it's because that's one side of the salvation coin. Sin must be judged, right? God doesn't forgive and forget in Christ's death on the cross, our sins have to be judged, right? And so they, they are, he bears them fully and completely on our behalf. So we're not going to God saying, act as if I didn't sin. We're going to God saying, may, may our sins be placed on Christ. And so those two things have got to be a part of our discussion of suffering and joy. It brings me back to the woes, you know, Christ pronounced all of, all of these woes on the oppressor on the the wicked, etc. In, in in Luke and, and in Matthew, and as the story ends, you realize that these woes that he's pronouncing on the oppressor they they eventually fall on him. He he intercedes to receive them, mm. so that both things can happen. Right, that both the wicked can repent, and 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 find salvation, and also those who are under oppression, those who have been. Um, hurt by the wicked are saved are are vindicated in the last day and they both happen because of the death and resurrection of christ sinclair ferguson is brought brings up this point in a sermon that i heard once i'm not sure if he talks about this in writing but he talks about how paul is wrestling with this and when paul says that i'm the chief of sinners he's not being just humble or sort of extravagant in his repentance but that there's actually indication that Paul may have seen himself as the chief sinner because he's the only one living that day who had gathered soldiers together to kill Christians. <laughs> and, and that he said, if you kind of like, if I can get in, anybody can get in. Right. But look at how Paul reflects on his own salvation. He says that man is now dead in Christ and, and now Christ is alive within him. And that's a way of talking about our salvation that when we go to Christ, we go to die because of our sin so that the spiritual man, Christ, might be living within us. But that's actually an act of judgment and then the act of blessing. The judgment has to happen. You have to die in Christ. You know, you're going and bringing someone their death when you bring them the gospel. And that's why it's so offensive to some, and that's why it's the words of life to others. Uh, yeah, thank you, you guys. Everything you're saying is just so um, – is, is just so uh, – uh, uh, encouraging. It's so sound in its scriptural basis and its um, uh, resolution in Christ. Um, 
as we think about this corporate idea or collective idea in suffering, I, I can't help but to wonder if there's some application with it in, in some of the uh, current things that have been going on in the last um, you know, several months, especially with a lot of the racial injustice that, that we have been dealing with that has been so, um, that's so prevalent, unfortunately, uh, that we are dealing with. You know, when we talk about racism, you know, we, we obviously are, are talking about racists who have oppressed, suppressed, and hurt other image bearers of God. And that's a deep sin that has, uh, that many within the minority, ethnic minorities, the African-American community particularly, that is per particularly painful for them. As they are, have been able to make this much more apparent, I, I can't help but to wonder, there's a call for repentance here for those who are who have been guilty of racism. And it's a incredibly uh, humiliating thing to confess. But if, if it's a real sin that we are wrestling with, that, that's something, you know, in light of what you just mentioned, uh, uh, Scott and Tommy, that is condemned in scripture. There's no doubt about it. And, and the Bible minces no words about it. But at the same time, there is redemption for those who are guilty of it. And, and, and the response of that is to repent of that sin, confess it deeply to those you have wronged, rejoice in the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Uh, I, again, this is so, there's so much more to say about repentance and what that means in the Christian life than that. But I can't help but to wonder if that's a step in, in a direction of dialogue that, um, that can be helpful, but not just to them, but to those who have uh, suffered racism. You know, the uh, African-American community in particular has been, you know, in through the media has been highlighted. But the, you, you, all, you all know as well as I do, this has been going on in, uh, uh, for our dear uh, brothers and sisters of, in the Lord, uh, that this is something they have endured for, for generations, uh, for, for centuries. And I can't help but to wonder if there is a word of encouragement that we can give to them. We, we condemn racism, uh, systemic and personal, and it is wrong, it is evil, it is unbiblical. Uh, and we strive as best as we can to rid our world of it. And I, do, I think we do that justly, and we have a strong call uh, for it to continue and to purify the institutions and the lives of the people that we live with. But for those who have had to endure it, uh, racism, who have been treated unjustly, who have been brutalized and ridiculed and marginalized and, and dehumanized to a certain extent, I can't, I, I wonder to, to what extent can what we're talking about here in First Peter chapter 4, this idea of identifying with the ultimate sufferer of injustice in Christ, I, I wonder to what extent uh, this is applicable to those who are going through, uh, who have suffered the, the horrors of racism uh, in their own lives, uh, uh, and to those, and within that, and within that community, that corporate community, uh, I mean, of those who have had to uh, endure this, I, I, I wonder if there's an application here, a, a, a way in which, through the, in a way that that only the Lord can do, can uh, redeem the experience, as horrible as it was, as still a source of joy. What do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think there, there's an identification that we need to be reminded of both in Christ, 
right? There's, there, there's that unique identification that we all have in Christ. And therefore, those brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering under both particular and systemic racism and injustice, we have solidarity with them in that. And I know that as a Christian, it's been, you know, it's been a bit of a privilege of mine not to have to sit under that burden. And I need to be, I think, repentant sort of in particular about not having recognized that and not having acknowledged that in, in, at times in my life. And to be aware of that because we are all coming to the Lord with this spirit of sonship, right? And crying out together. And therefore we have solidarity in our sonship uh, that is in Christ. Um, and then there's also this broader identification, obviously with those made in the image of God. And that's why um, all injustice needs to be wept for and fought against. Um, just as Habakkuk was saying about Babylon, you know, that's unjust. It, it needs to be turned back. You know, Ezekiel talks about the fact that even though the Lord may use Babylon to his just ends, um, it doesn't change the fact that the Babylonian king is standing at the crossroads with his arrows doing an omen to try to figure out which way he should go. <laughs> and he's not observing. He doesn't know that he's, that he's in the hand of God. And we need to be fighting and pushing against that right, against that kind of oppression and injustice. And, and I, I think there's a lot to be said for the solidarity that we have with those who are in Christ and that identification that we have with those who are made in the image of God, kind of sort of more particularly and more broadly. And we're called to return to the Lord in that. We're called to be formed by the character of Christ in that and how char- Christ is a perfect representation of the Godhead. And as we respond then to what we see around us, we need to respond, I think, both with passion and, and with action. And of course, you know, the hard part comes down to, okay, how do we do that well? How do we do that wisely? And that's what so many of the discussions are about. But I think Christians who are, who are so well accustomed to the notion of repentance, this shouldn't be alien to us that there are sins and injustices in the world that we may have been blind to or may have had, um, you know, been ignorant of. That, that shouldn't be a surprising notion to Christians. This is something that we're painfully aware of. The heart is deceitful above all things. I mean, the scriptures deal with this over and over and over again. So um, I, I think you're absolutely right. As I was reading, again, your book, just preparing for this, I was thinking about how this has application both in individual and in corporate uh, contexts. And I, I think also important to recognize how God uses suffering to discipline us, uh, to, to indicate those areas where we have been blind, where we have been obtuse and willfully ignorant of our own sin. We can kind of have this idea that if the suffering comes upon me because it's, you know, it's my own fault, that it, it's not redemptive. It doesn't, it doesn't help to unite me with Christ, but actually discipline is this the, and the suffering that is brought about by God's discipline is designed to do precisely that to help me to mature in Christ to help me to see the sin that I've committed to repent of it to respond appropriately to it and to draw me near in the 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 the, the, the crucifixion of my flesh and the vivica- vivification of the spirit that dwells in me because because of Christ and so being able to use these times to see my own culpable persistent error 
and sinfulness and then repent and come to Christ and find greater union with him and forgiveness. Those are powerful ways in which God uses his loving discipline in the life of the church. I know the, uh, the PCA, uh, you know, has written a report on race and racism and, um, uh, and I know that there was at, at moments in certain assembly meetings where, you know, men courageously stepped forward, acknowledging the racism that they were guilty of and, and repenting that deeply, asking forgiveness so passionately in brokenness. And that's such a, uh, it, it's, it's horrible that it happens. Um, and it's probably more prevalent even than we realize, but there's something truly extraordinary about seeing that sort of level of humility and brokenness and, and confession and the desire for redemption that can only be found uh, in Christ. There's a great scene in, uh, in the movie Amistad. There's a scene where you had uh, African slaves and they're being oppressed and treated uh, in the most grotesque of ways. And, somehow one of them got a copy of the Bible. And of course, they can't read a single word, English words in the Bible, but uh, the, it was, there were pictures, illustrations in the, in the Bible that was illustrating various different stages in the life of Christ, of how he was a light of hope that was sent by God to the people, how he went around. In another illustration, there was a, a picture of how Jesus is roaming through the, the, uh, the, the land, uh, promoting the teachings of God. There's another illustration where he is embracing the children and, you know, all of these just really great redemptive, you know, biblical stories from the Gospels. But there's a, another picture where it shows him being betrayed by the people that, that he was working with and how ultimately there's another picture of him hanging on the cross. And even though this, this slave could not read a single word of English, the, the diagrams and the illustrations illustrated the gospel message in a real powerful way. And you could see that he was embracing the gospel because he identified with the suffering of Christ and how he was saying that he as a slave endured the same exact try to hardship unjustly coming with the best of intents, but yet rejected, dehumanized and, and persecuted and how he, I guess you could say he was identifying with Christ in his suffering and uh, that leads that portion of the movie just ended with him embracing the Bible to, to his chest and how he was uh, holding to the scriptures because the message that was so clearly illustrated through those diagrams was something that spoke to him, that ministered to him and um, profoundly changed his perspective. And, and it's, just, it's just a real powerful scene in, uh, in the movie. And I can't help but to wonder, you know, again, our, 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 our African-American brothers uh, and Asian-Americans, if I can include that in the dialogue to, to a, perhaps to a certain extent, are, are ones who can genuinely appreciate what it means to be treated unjustly, unfairly, in a way that is, um, that is so reflective of, of Christ himself. And it's a very powerful, though painful way uh, that the scripture seems to be almost calling out. It, it's an invitation to, to, to know what it's like. What is it like to be uh, rejected? What is it like to be, to be dehumanized? What is it like to, be, to do what you can as fairly as you can and, and as reasonably as you can 
and yet to be ridiculed and to be rejected. To a certain extent, perhaps the Church of the West, I think, has a hard time struggling with this because the history of the Western Church is not one riddled with persecution and rejection and hardship. But there are those within our communities uh, corporately that, that can. Uh, and I can't help but to wonder if the word of First Peter chapter 4 and other related passages, what Paul says in, in Philippians 1, uh, in chapter 3, verse 10, where he says basically the same thing, that he wants to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings, I think is what it says there in Philippians 3.10. In fact, I think it's the same vocabulary as First Peter 4. I, I can't help but to wonder if this is related. You know, Paul in um, Philippians 1.20, help me with this, Tommy, either 127 or 129, right around there, I think, is where uh, he says that it is a grace gift to, for you not to only believe in his name, but also to suffer for Christ, which I've always found is so uh, meaningful because, you know, faith is a gift. That's easy. As Calvinists, we understand that. Uh, and it's just that's Calvinism 101. But to see suffering for Christ as a gift, now that doesn't compute unless, of course, we can see that the call to suffer with Christ and the idea of being united with a suffering Christ is ultimately a, an understanding that we will only find joy if we understand the whole Jesus, the full Jesus, and that means identifying with his suffering as well as his glory. Well, I think, and to Paul's, Paul's point there, the, the reason it's a joy is not because suffering, whatever doesn't kill you, makes you stronger or anything like that. It, it is thoroughly Christological in its orientation. And so why is suffering a joy? Because it manifests your union with Christ, and therefore God will vindicate you from the oppressed. He will judge the oppressor just as he did for Christ. You know, Jesus was vindicated from that uh, from, from the state of death, from sin, from the wickedness of the oppressor, and glorified, given the name that's above every name. And that's why there is joy there, because it means in God's universe, vindication, victory in the resurrection. Right. Which also, you know, brings with it the not-so-subtle implication about white Christians who supported or were in some other way complicit or passive in the face of slavery and Jim Crow and even today. People who know this gospel story, they know about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and yet they still propagate and perpetuate such suffering. You know, I think not, not, not just Christians in general in the antebellum South or something, but I mean, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, this is a grave indictment and rebuke of some of their ethical application of the scriptures. Right. And that's, that's a side of this that I think we have to always keep in mind when we're talking about, you know, the suffering that we see in the world around us, lest we be those who amplify the suffering. Well said. All right. So everybody let's, uh, Let's end the conversation. There's a lot of food for thought in this and a lot of um, a lot of good gospel teaching that needs to be absorbed and processed, uh, as I know all of us are doing a lot of these days. Um, I, I'd like to recommend as you're processing these ideas, Dr. Peter Lee's book, Joy Unspeakable, Finding Joy 
in Christ-like suffering. You can get it online right now. It was published last January, uh, two Januarys ago, January 2019. That's a great resource. And Dr. Lee will point you to all of the pertinent biblical texts. Um, but get a good commentary on Ecclesiastes or Job if you want to dig more deeply into biblical books that are dealing in particular with this issue of suffering and human responses to it. I definitely want to recommend as well Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through yeah. Pain and Suffering, and Todd Billings's book, Rejoicing and Lament, which also, I mean, Billings is also an authority on union with Christ. So that's worth picking up as well. It's a great book. And Billings is, of course, wrestling with his own struggle with cancer and publicly doing that as a theologian and very, um, I think he's, he's served the church and just his discussions of how to walk through this in a very kind of biblically, theologically informed way. It's been a real ministry to me to, to listen to him. C.S. Lewis is a grief observed. I know that there's issues with it and, and there's some theological things that people have uh, commented on but if you focus on that word observed you, he really just walks through his experience of pretty pretty traumatic suffering and reson can resonate with that um you know with our experience uh, of suffering and i you know in, in thinking sympathetically about pain and the problem of pain it, it comes to mind as something that was helpful to me uh, you, you know, in my, in my life. And Dan McCartney's got a little book, uh, also called, uh, what is it called? The problem of pain or no, it's called, why does it have to hurt? Which is both biblically, theologically and, uh, pastorally helpful. Yeah. I like that book by uh, Dan McCartney. It's actually one of the few books that really tries to deal with, uh, with first Peter, actually. Uh, it's, it was actually surprising to see how um, absent or silent uh, first Peter was in, in all of the books that we've, uh, th that is, is written on this subject. And, and that was part of the inspiration for, for writing the book that I did. Um, a, another book that I found uh uh, surprisingly helpful, I have to say, is, is uh, something written by a colleague of ours, John Currid. Uh, the specific title kind of escapes me, but it deals with the sovereignty of God and, and Christian suffering. So I know those terms were in the actual title by, um, uh, in this book, but, you know, Currid is a, is a trained Egyptologist. He's an academic. Um, he has pastored, and I think he still continues to pastor, um, uh, and uh, he wrote this book, which um, is theologically very, very sound, very helpful. Um, and what I actually found really encouraging is how he ends each chapter with a pastoral prayer. And, and he just, um, uh, and so he ends by praying at the end of each chapter for, uh, for, uh, for the, the people of God as they are going through different uh, different things. It's actually, that's what inspired me to end the book the way that I did. I, I end my book with a prayer by and large influenced by, uh, by John Curd and the way that he uh, ended each chapter of his book in the same way. Is that why do I suffer? Um, su suffering in the sovereignty of God? I, I think that's it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then we talked a good bit about just Injustice, a history of racial injustice in the United States. I think some great background books 
on that if you're unaware of the history in the United States and how the gospel applies in those settings. I would recommend a book by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, Divided by Faith, Evangelical Religion and the Problem of Race in America. It's a good historical, um, just kind of back, general background, particularly dealing with Protestantism and how racial injustice uh, uh, was in many ways supported, in some ways just allowed in Christian Protestantism. And then um, a book by our colleague, uh, Carl Ellis, Free at Last, The Gospel and the African-American Experience, I think is an is invaluable resource. And Carl Ellis has been a really valuable voice um, over the past few decades, um, just helping us think through, and he's taught here at our campus as well, think through what are the gospel implications, the biblical theological implications um, for the Christian interacting with multi-ethnic worship, interacting with racial injustice, with uh, the history of the church in the United States, and he's been a real valuable resource throughout. All right, it's been wonderful to have this conversation. Thank you again for your service to the church, Dr. Lee, with this book, Unspeakable Joy. It's been a joy to discuss it with you. And uh, since I said so, I guess that's a speakable joy, since I just said so. Um, but with that said, hey, thanks for being with us, everybody. It's great to see you, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Take care. How do I figure out why God is causing me to suffer now? Why this moment? Why this suffering? Why this particular pain? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. It's a great answer. <laughs>